We're so glad that you've tuned into our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Kinley Tig, the kids pastor here at Rolling Hills. Today, we're exploring what discipleship means as a follower of Jesus and how we can move forward with the next step in our faith journey. We all have a step to take to grow as a believer. So join us as we discover what God's word teaches us about this very topic. Now, here's Pastor Nick. Good morning. Thanks for being here today. I'm glad that you've tuned into this whole idea of an engage series that we're in that we began last week. It's this whole idea of engaging uh, 40 days your spiritual life and what that looks like for you to continue being a person that grows spiritually. I'll tell you, my 13-year-old, her name is Nora Blake, and when she was little, I think all kids do this to a degree. All of ours certainly did. Hers maybe a little more than others. They all pronounce words really incorrectly, but you don't correct them because you think it's cute. You just let it go on forever and ever. When Nora Blake was little, um, she didn't forget things. She forgetted things because she often added just an unnecessary ED to the ends of all kinds of words that didn't necessarily need it. And granted, at age three, super cute. If she was still doing that at 13, um, hopefully um, peer pressure would correct that, right? Like kids would just make fun of her and tell her, like, you shouldn't say that because it's the wrong way to do it. Who knows if she would even notice that. She also, um, she was our kid that refused to potty train, like outright defiantly just said she was never, ever going to do that. Eventually she did, fortunately, um, because that would be awful. Okay, so she did. Um, but she never told us that she needed to go use the potty. It was always, I need to go lose the potty, which... <laughs> is not incorrect when you think about it, but still, if she were saying that in middle school, there would be a problem and kids would come around her and correct her. But when we were little, we thought it was just super cute and we let her go on and do those things for as long as necessary. This whole idea that we tackle today um, is the idea of discipleship and what it means to grow and mature. Paul wrote a letter to a church in Corinth, and he was basically explaining to him, hey, when I was a child, I, I talked like a child, I walked like a child, I reasoned like a child, but now that I'm older, I have abandoned those childish ways and, and gone on to maturity. And so we're talking about what it means to be spiritually mature and the things that change about us over time. Like, I want a, a childlike faith, but I'm not going to have that if I maintain childlike disciplines. They've, they've got to grow and they've got to mature over time. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, like your analog copy that you want to dial into or a digital one that you want to find the verses that we're going to follow along with, I just go ahead and invite you to turn to John chapter 15. We're, we're going to park and spend some time there this morning, but we're really going to bounce across a lot of passages of New Testament scripture and not start there. But if you want to go ahead and grab it in advance, you can go to John chapter 15. We'll begin in verse one a little bit later. But the kickoff verse, verse for this understanding of what it means to be a disciple and what it means to be a follower of Jesus actually comes to us today from the book of Romans, also written by Paul, chapter 8, verse 29. It says this, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, a lot of people have, have like a big argument with this verse right on the outset because we want to pause and we want to stop and we want to figure out, well, well, what does that word foreknew? mean? Like, what, is it, what does it mean that God foreknew those who would choose him and those who would come to an understanding of who Jesus is in salvation? And that predestined word, we're going to pause there for a second and be like, well, what does that mean? And also, what does it not mean? And theologians for all time and probably for the remainder of time will continue to argue about what those words mean and what they don't mean. And if we're not careful, we can get so sidetracked focusing on the first couple of words of this verse that we never arrive on the most important word in this verse, which is the word conformity. In fact, we should be so occupied 
with what it means to be conformed in the image of Jesus that we don't have time for any other discussion about what particular words in this verse mean. And it's this reason that God's pronounced plan for your life. It's in your notes this morning if you like to be a person that fills in blanks so that you can follow along and remember the things that we talk about at church or if you can just stay awake today, whatever it is. Like here it is. The idea of God's pronounced plan for your life has always been and always will be shaping you into his. Always. Like that's it. Like you never have to be that person that that enters into a discussion like, oh, I just don't know what God's will is for my life. Here it is. His will for your life and every single part of it is that you would be conformed into the image of his son Jesus, that you would transform into being more like him today than you were yesterday and more like him tomorrow than you are today, regardless of the discussions that we can have about any other single part of this verse. Incidentally, it comes after a verse that a lot of us like to quote. See, Romans 8, 28 says that God works all things together for the good. Oh, I love it that God's doing something good on my behalf. For the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And a misrepresentation of that verse is all about the idea that, gosh, if I just love God, everything is going to be good in my life. And I'll use my definition of what's good in my life, like raises and bonuses and cruises and all the other is. is like those would be good for my life. And that God's all, if I love him, I'll get to have all of that. But the idea of God working out is not just my definition of good, it's ultimately his definition of good. And what we can take in that understanding is that his definition of good for me is that always that I would be moving in conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. And conformity, here's what we have to know, it's a lifelong process. It it, it literally never ends. You, You never get fully transformed into the life of Jesus so much so that you never have to be concerned with the idea of growing again. That word conformity in scripture is the word sumorphus, and it literally comes from two Greek words, one that means with and one that's morphe, which we understand the idea of morphing into something, mostly because at my house we watch the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and somebody goes, it's morphing. In fact, if my eight-year-old was here today he, and I said the word morph, he would immediately think of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and it's morphin time. And I would have to say, son, that's really not what this passage of scripture is talking about. Let's dive into the meaning of the words in Greek and he would stop listening. It's this idea of with transformation that we become like Jesus. It's a lifelong process. Hebrews chapter three gives us a summary. It says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness because not only does God have an incredible plan for our life to mold us into the image of his son Jesus, the enemy has an incredible plan for our life to distract us from doing that. And he wants to pull us away from becoming more Christ-like in life. And there always seems to be a distraction and even a disaster falling apart around us to prevent us from truly becoming like Jesus Christ in our lives. And it's an every single day process of choosing to dial in and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. It says at the end of that in verse 14, we have come to share in Christ. We have come to experience his life. We have come to be more like him in life. If indeed we hold to our original conviction, if you're a person that likes to underline or highlight things, you can underline or highlight that word conviction to the very end. And the end doesn't come until Jesus comes back. Like we're always in the process of growing. It's a lifelong process. If you get 85 years, if you get 45 years, if you get four, this whole identity of conformity in Christ is his plan for our life. And every single circumstance that happens in us, around us, even to us, every single relationship that we're in, every single opportunity that we have is a part of his design 
to make us more like his son. That word conviction, if you study the root of what it means, it's literally the word under. It's literally the word under, and so you ask yourself, okay, well, what am I, what am I under today? You're under authority, and you're also under grace. I dive into this passage of scripture kind of often, and I say it to myself over and over again as a reminder of like who I am, but also who I'm not. Roman centurion, a soldier, approaches Jesus and wants to experience healing in the life of his servant. And Jesus is like, okay, yeah, I'll come to you. And he's like, oh, no, you don't have to come to me. In fact, you can just say the word and I know that he will be healed. And then the soldier goes on to explain, for I myself am a man under authority. It's in Matthew chapter eight, verse nine. It says this, uh, with soldiers that are under me. I I tell this one, go, and he goes. I'll tell this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And this soldier understands the idea idea of being in a system of authority. He's got people that he's in charge of, and he's also got people that are in charge of him. And his understanding of who Jesus was in that equation, you submit to God the Father, and yet you are the great authority in this life. I know that if you say it, he will be healed. Jesus was so impressed with his faith that he healed the servant. I say this to all of us. I say this to myself. If I have a problem with authority, it's because I have a problem with humility. Oh no. My wife is like, say it louder for you, Nick Allen, sitting in the back. Hello, Pot, let me introduce you to my friend Kettle. Like, if I have a problem with authority, it's because I have a problem with humility. And we'll just take the, the Protestant church in Western culture right here in America. We've come to understand this idea of the autonomy of a local church and we've somehow translated that to be the autonomy of every individual believer. Autonomy is a good thing until it's not. And where all of this is concerned for us, it's every opportunity you have, every relationship that you're in, every time you turn on the news, every time you evaluate the world, every time you make a decision for your life, we ought to be asking ourselves this overarching question, is my autonomy in life something that I am willing to do, anything I can to protect, even at the expense of others? Or is my autonomy in life something that I'm willing to do, anything I can to leverage it in service to others? Jesus said to his disciples, people that were following him, hey, the son of man, Jesus, I I did not come to be served, but to serve and to ultimately give my life up as a ransom for many. When we become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you are focused in on your spiritual growth and being a disciple of Jesus Christ, when you understand that Romans 8 29 is all about conforming everything that is about you into the person of Jesus Christ, it will make you others focused. It will make you service oriented. It will make you focus more on what you give than what you get. It will make you focus on what you have to lose in this life in order to better understand what you have to gain in this life. We are a people who are under authority. And if we have a problem with authority, human authority, man-made authority, governmental authority, school of all those authorities, then ultimately the first question is that we have a problem with humility. And as a people who are under conviction, there is a submission quotient required for believers in Jesus Christ. We're also under grace. 
We're, we're also under this idea of grace. Paul writes in this most theological book in all of the New Testament, the one that we, we gather from, the one that we understand best, our identity in Christ and our understanding of what salvation is, this book of Romans. He writes in chapter six, verse 14, sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law. And he says that to a people who were so focused on the law and who wanted to continue following the Old Testament law and adhering to the Old Testament law because they didn't understand a way that they could be instead what he says, under grace. There's this picture of uh, people who refused to understand that we're under grace and that there's a forgiveness and that there's a freedom found in following Jesus. And it's not about the laws that we follow, but the life that we enjoy because of the gift that we've been given. And we can be both. We can be a, a people who are under authority and also under grace. And we can hold both of those things together with one another. Discipleship is always others oriented and it's always moving us closer to the person of Jesus. Whether you've been a a declared Christ follower for 40 years or 40 minutes, every single one of us has a next step to grow in Christ likeness. Whether the end of your life comes next week or decades and decades later, we all have a next step to grow in Christ-likeness. And so at the start of this, we could just go pretty base level and say, well, what is a disciple? Like, what does it mean? If I were to ask my eight-year-old, hey, what is a disciple? He would just start listing the names that he happens to know, like, like Matthew or Judas or Tom, Judas was the bad one, but Thomas or his favorite one, obviously, because his name is Simon. He would say Peter because it's Simon Peter that we understand in scripture who gave us several books, who preached the first sermon after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And we'll talk about that, where this whole group of people became followers of Jesus Christ. If you ask Simon what a disciple is, he's going to start by listing who a disciple is in scripture. But if we want to go and take it even a a step further back than that. It's the Greek word methetes, and it literally means pupil or learner. A a disciple is certainly somebody that's leading. A disciple is certainly someone who's growing, but at its base level definition, a disciple is someone who is learning, and that implies a level of teachability I read a book, I think it was like 2017, and it's one that I continue to go back to over and over again. I think it has implications for everything that we do in life as parents and leaders, maybe teachers, and and so many of the things that we understand about the way that this world works. It's by a pastor named Matt Keller, and he literally wrote a book called The Key to Everything. And like, that's scary and audacious. And like, how did you get a publisher to buy into that? Like, you wrote a book called The Key to Everything? Like, I almost wanted to read it just to prove him wrong and say, well, I found something that this is not the key to the key to everything, and he says it's teachability. And he defines teachability with this whole equation that says like your teachability score is basically your desire to learn and your willingness to change. Because you can have a desire to learn something like that's off the charts, but if your willingness to do anything about it is low, then your teachability is really low. Or you can have a willingness that's unended to do crazy things in life, but if you don't have a desire, then you're not going to be motivated to do it. It's this picture of a person's teachability really being their greatest asset. It's not your resume, it's not your education, it's not your skill set, but your teachability that's going to be best for you in a job or in a school or in even a relationship. And so he chronicles the first part of the book is on roadblocks to teachability because we all have them. And he talks about Old Testament King Saul and all the roadblocks to his leadership. And then he goes into New Testament Saul, Paul, who wrote these words, and he talks about the characteristics of teachability and what it looks like to be a person who says, okay, 
I want to learn. I want to grow. I, I, I want to transform in life to be better tomorrow than I was today. Like, I want to grow. And so that's what we say. We say a disciple is a growing, like ever-growing, ever-increasing follower of Jesus Christ. And that's a believer who's taking intentional steps towards Christ-likeness and inviting other people to do the same. Growth is not guaranteed. It's not for the plant kingdom. It takes nutrients. It's not even for the human body. That takes nourishment. Well, when our spiritual growth is concerned as disciples in Jesus Christ, it takes nourishment. There are intentional steps that are required for us to continue being growing followers of Jesus Christ. So how practically? It's in your notes. Like, what what are the practical applications? Like, what, what do we do if we are indeed to grow? Well, the first is the recognition that it's really not about your work, but about Christ's. Christ is the one who does the work. Paul writes it in Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2 for us. He says, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's literally being carried out day by day, step by step, but it's God who does the work. He reaffirms that in chapter 2. He says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That ultimately we sit back and we recognize that if I'm ever going to become like Christ, if I'm ever going to live a sacrificial life, if I'm ever going to truly be able to love everyone always, if I'm ever going to live a life in accordance with what his plan is for me to be a growing follower of his, it's going to take him doing a lot of work on us. And the reason that happens is because we understand our part is that we must remain. That we must remain. We must remain connected to him and committed to him. Or or else we'll do what Hebrews chapter 3 says and fall away from the living God, hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The reason that we're able to not fall away from the living God and be hardened by sin's deceitfulness is because we remain connected to him. And that's where John 15 comes in. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he explains to them with the whole series of I am statements, introducing himself to the world, telling what salvation is, telling them who he is. And in John chapter 15, he gives the last one, and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Remain in me. Some of your Bible translations are going to say abide in me. Some of them are going to say dwell in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He says again, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory. This is God's pronounced purpose for your life. This is our understanding of what he wants from us and what he wants for us and what he wants in us. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. If we're followers of Jesus, the the indications in our life is that we will be people who bear spiritual fruit. And that's how we'll show that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus and following who he is. And that doesn't happen unless we remain connected. And it's a present and it's an active verb that we will continuously remain in him 
It's the Greek word meno, and it literally means abide, and it means remain, and it means dwell. You're not going to like this, but still listen to me. It also means wait. Man, Jesus, why you got to say that? Because <laughs> we're not a people that like to wait, and we're not a people that like to submit, and we're not a people that like the long, hard, arduous purpose and plan of God being transformed into Jesus, wouldn't it be better if it was just instantaneous? Um, you prayed a prayer, you believed some truth, you dunked yourself in water, and all of a sudden you were miraculously transformed into the person of Jesus, so much so that every interaction you have in life is sheer perfection, and you literally go on to live a problem-free life because you're following Jesus in every single step of the way with no problems whatsoever. Man, it's a long process. A growing disciple bears fruit that's where the proof is, and it's in a daily submission to him and a willingness to remain connected to him that we grow. There's some practical ingredients that go along with it, and the first for us is God's word. We're not going to grow apart from this word. Paul writes towards the end of that same theological letter to the church in Rome, literally writing these words 10 years before his death, leaving a legacy of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus behind. He writes, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the law and the prophets and the history and the poetry that they had literally, many of them, memorized throughout their life. He's talking about those Old Testament scriptures, and now he's talking about these New Testament gospel truths about Jesus and ultimately even the letters that he would write to us. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance that's taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. This is why we lack hope, because we don't read. This is why we lack endurance, because we don't read. There's an author and a speaker and a teacher. Her name is Priscilla Shire. I like her a lot. She says really good things. You should look her up. She's written some incredible Bible studies and, and spoken some incredible sermons, and she's a, a great one to know and follow. She gives us a bunch of P's that help us understand reading Scripture. I think it's because we as teachers really find ourselves fancy when we can start everything that's important with the same letter. It's alliteration, and it just makes you feel good. She says that the first thing about Scripture is that you should position yourself to hear from God. And sometimes that position is all about a geography. Like you, need, you like outside, you like outdoors, you, you like nature, you like to go and read, or, or, or sometimes it's about isolation. Like you just need to be alone in a closet, distraction-free. And sometimes that position is about a posture. You literally have to submit to God and say, okay, I know you have something good to say to me and I wanna be open-hearted and open-minded. That's not an unnecessary ED to the end of that word, is it? I hope not. Okay, I want to be open-minded so that I can receive it. You just position yourself to hear from God as if he's speaking to you. The next P is that you would pour over the scripture. Read it. Read it again. A, a lot of people year after year are so committed and connected to the idea of, I'm going to read the whole Bible through in a year. Every single part of it. Genesis all the way through Revelation. Well, here what we understand is that all Scripture is inspired by God, but not all Scripture is equally important to us. Reading the Bible cover to cover, year after year, is an admirable goal, but don't set yourself up for failure. It would be more important if you would just read part of the Bible every day for a year than it would be if you completed the whole Bible year after year. Pick some small passages 
just some single verses and, and pour over them, dive into them, reread them, and focus on them. And the next one is that you would pull out spiritual truths. Like, what does it say? Is this a, a command that I should follow? Is this a characteristic that I'm supposed to live out? Is this an understanding that I'm supposed to have? Is this the way that I'm supposed to treat others? What are those spiritual principles? And then you ask the question, or pose the question, how does this affect me directly? She says, God doesn't speak to be heard. He speaks to be obeyed. Everything you read, everything you dive into, everything you study is supposed to have some sort of transformative principle in your lives and the last step is that you pee, plan your obedience. Like, wait, what am I going to do today with what I've read? Like, how is this going to impact my interactions? How is this going to change my attitude? How is this going to figure into my relationships? Like, how is this going to better form me into the person of Jesus today? If she and I were friends and I had her phone number and I would text her and I would say, hey, Priscilla, I've got a sixth P for you. Another word that you could add to your list. It's people. Because it's important that you dive in and that you develop the daily habit of encountering God's word. You will not grow as a disciple unless you are connected to this word. But the second one is Christian community. People matter. People matter. You look all through the New Testament. We're reading it in the English language and you come upon this word you so many times. And we, because we're Western, because we're American, because we're individualistic, we always go to that word you and we think it means me. And to a degree it does. But if you dive into the actual grammar of the word, it's typically second person plural, not second person singular. This understanding of you being the branches Jesus being the vine, this understanding of you not being able to do anything apart from him, it's not an individual you, it's a collective you. We will not grow as disciples if we're not committed and connected to this word. We will also not grow as disciples if we're not committed and connected to one another. You may have had a conversation at some point with someone who was like, yeah, you know, I really don't need the life of the church. I don't have to attend on Sundays. I don't have to be a part of a corporate worship gathering. I don't have to dive into some sort of small group or community group Bible study. I can really follow Jesus on my own and just dive into his word and read scriptures. It's a personal private relationship and I'm really okay without it. I will give that person the benefit of the doubt every single day of the week and say that they are a well-meaning believer in Jesus Christ. But I will also say really gently, they are not reading the Bible because it very clearly says that we are made to be connected and committed to one another. And that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And it's always about a we. Some of you have somebody like that in your life, and I just invite you to plead with them. Just, just, just plead with them. To remain in Jesus is to remain connected and committed to a local church I read an article at the start of the pandemic last year when we had literally only made a decision at Rolling Hills to cancel for two weeks and to be online only. Literally, we didn't know what was gonna happen next. We didn't know how long we were gonna have to do this. We didn't realize that it was gonna be not two weeks, but two months before we could gather together in person. We didn't realize that it would be another full 10 months before we weren't doing assigned seating in a room and having people register and only remain masked on Sunday mornings. Like, we didn't know what was gonna happen then. And quite honestly, we don't know what's gonna happen now. But I read an article at the beginning of that. It's from a pastor um, in California, I think, and, and basically he was explaining, hey, let's be careful because our necessary reality today, the thing that we have to do necessarily right now cannot be our defining characteristic going forward. 
what we make as a compromise now cannot be our ongoing convenience in the future. Because you can watch a million sermons online and listen, there are far better pastors out there in like whole other cities and you can listen to them on demand like 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I podcast a bunch of them. They're fantastic teachers in my life, but they're not my pastor. They're not my shepherd. I don't know them in person and I'm not connected to the community that they're developing. And most of them, if they're worth anything, would tell you, if you're listening to them online, you'll sometimes hear, hey, if you're not connected to a local church where you live, make sure you find one because they understand the value of it. We need Christian community. And that's why this whole community group link thing is so important today and why we hammer on it year after year after year because you need to be in a life-giving community. It's how you know people. One of the bigger barriers and excuses that people offer of like not wanting to join a community group is because they don't know anybody. Well, that's how you're gonna get to know somebody. And you're not gonna know people just because you encounter the same folks on Sunday morning and you all stare forward while we sing some songs and say some words. Like you may know somebody's name and their face, but you don't know them until you've sat in a circle with them and learned their story and heard about their joy and experienced some of their sorrow. That happens in community group, and we need that from one another, and we need that with each other. Other excuses and opportunities that we've heard throughout the years, like, oh, I just don't have time. No one does, FYI, but we all calendar what's important, and there is something on your calendar week after week after week that is non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable for you, and that's good. It's a discipline that you have in that area of your life. I just challenge you to make connecting in Christian community one of those things that's non-negotiable for you. People will say, I'm I'm really scared of the unknown elements. Like, I don't know if I'm gonna show up at somebody's house and they're gonna make me read the Bible out loud or they're gonna make me pray out loud and that's nervous for you. I can just go and tell you that we've removed that barrier. No community group leader that's been trained at Rolling Hills will ever put anyone on the spot. Like, you can know for sure that when you go in, you're not gonna be put on the spot in that way. In fact, I feel like as a church through the years, and it's not due to me, and I can brag on it for a second, we've done a good job removing all of the barriers that someone might have for being in a community group. And sometimes I lament that because I think we ought to leave some of those barriers in. I wonder if it wouldn't be better if we, if we left some of those hurdles in the way because it might be good for us as believers to have to pray and strategize and sacrifice to jump over a few of those. Whatever the hurdle is, whatever the hangup is, if you need to be a part of a group, and we do, some sort of life-giving community group, let us help you figure out what those hurdles are and and let us figure out how you can get across them, even if it means some sort of compromise or sacrifice on your part because we do believe that it will be worth it. We don't just need this word. We don't just need Christian community. We also need a teachable spirit. (laughs) That that teachable spirit, and you can understand that there is an implication there of a humble desire and a willing endurance Paul said this. He wrote it to the church in Philippi. Hey, guys, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. And let me tell you, if the Apostle Paul had not yet taken hold of it, none of us have yet either. We're not there. And in order for us to get there, it takes a consistent, humble, teachable spirit There is such a stark contrast between the arrogant and the autonomous. Oh, I already know that, Lord. 
and the really humble and the teachable, please show me one more time, Lord. And I always wanna be a, hey, please show it to me again, Lord, and never a, oh yeah, I already know that, Lord, because as soon as you are the person that says, I've already got that part of faith figured out, that's probably the direct area that you need to be diving into the most. We've never got it all figured out. And so we all dive in and trust more and say, okay, I humbly stand here open-handed and open-hearted and open-minded. Lord, teach me and change me. I'm ready. It's almost like put on the elastic waistband because you know you got to get filled up and lift with your legs and not your back because the Lord's gonna drop something good on you and you wanna be positioned and ready for it. As soon as you say, oh, I got this, it's the first indication that you don't. So the last thing is a multiplied ministry. This, this whole understanding of everything that we do is all about a multiplication principle in ministry, that it's always growing and always sustaining because the people of God understand that our greatest asset in life is the one another's that we live out with one another and the way that we follow him together. So Paul had several guys that he mentored through the years. One of them was a fellow named Timothy. Timothy traveled with him, learned from him, and was ultimately sent out by him to be his agent on the next mission. So Paul writes to him in a letter. It's recorded for us in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Hey, everything I've taught you, keep at it. Like this was about an investment that Paul had made in his life. And he says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And he was writing Timothy this letter because he was now the leader of a church in Ephesus and he was now directing people's lives. He was now being the spiritual authority in their lives. And what he had learned from Paul, he was now supposed to teach to others. That's the multiplication principle in ministry. And so you ask yourself the question, who am I learning from? Like, who's made the biggest spiritual investment in your life? Who's making the current spiritual investment in your life? Write down their name. But then also, who are you investing in? Who are you pouring all of that back into? Some of us are still out there adding unnecessary EDs to the end of our words, and it's time to grow up. And it's time to position ourselves to learn from someone, but then also to invest in someone else because it takes all of us. At the Nashville campus of Rolling Hills, we're, we're essentially a, a church plant that's figuring it out every single day and knowing that every single one of us has a distinct role in passing this thing forward and sharing faith with a neighborhood around us and lighting people up with the light of Jesus all around us. I recognize every week that we always have new and, and first-time guests, and I get opportunities sometimes during the week to engage them on some kind of level and tell them more about the life of our church. Sometimes I want to say, hey, I know that you came here looking for something, and I know that you're trying to figure out by visiting the myriad of churches that are around the city of Nashville what needs in your life they may fill, but can I challenge you with just one more question because the, the idea of finding a local church is not just about what need in your life it may fill, but what maybe what need in the life of the church you can respond to. So, so maybe it's not just about what you get. Maybe it's also about what you can contribute. I would say that the mark of a disciple in Jesus Christ is not just what they're growing and learning, but also how they're sharing and teaching. Out of all those, there's, there's probably one that lingers with you more. 
the idea of making a commitment today to say, I need to engage more with the word of God. I need to just read scripture, start small. We've got two Bible reading plans that are going on right now. One is just 40 days long through the life of this series and you can easily catch up because it's just a few passages through scripture that will explain to you the whole narrative gospel of God. We also have an ongoing plan that's reading some sort of passage of scripture every single day, bouncing across scripture that's gonna help you grow in life. But there are dozens, probably hundreds of others that you could follow that will help you dive into God's word daily. Maybe that's your action step. Or maybe it's to figure out this group link, scan that QR code, figure out a way to be involved in the group life of this church and connect with other believers so that you can have relationships that will thrive. Maybe it's literally just praying today and saying, okay, Holy Spirit, I recognize that there are areas of my life where I'm pretty hard-hearted and I'm pretty stubborn and unwilling to change, and maybe you just want to humble me and create a more teachable spirit inside of me. Or maybe for you that next step is realizing as much as I've learned, I've not really sacrificed. As much as I've learned, I've not really led. As much as there are people who are pouring into me, it's time that I pour myself into others. Trust me, we got a job for you. Whatever that next step is, every single one of us has one. And it's all to fulfill God's grand purpose for our lives that we would grow to maturity, abandon the ways of childhood, and see what else he has next for us as he wants to use all of us together to further the name of Jesus, to bear more fruit, and to make more disciples in our community. And I hope together we can all take that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day um, and for the chance to be in this place and for the opportunity that we have to engage your word and trust that you have a plan for us in it. For every single person that's in this room, every man, every woman, every student, um, every person, um, Father, would you help us individually to know what our next steps are as believers? But then collectively, would you help us to understand and know what our next step is as a church to better be the people that you've called to be, those who look and act and sound and live like Jesus. How can we be the best representatives of your son, bearing the most fruit for your glory in the world that we live for as long as we live in it every single day? Would you help us to be your followers? Teach us who you are, God, and what it means to follow you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. We're thankful for you.